0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob Jacobson. I'm so glad you're here. As This is week after Easter. Some of you might be experiencing this kind of shift, like, wow, there was this movement. I could feel the resurrection. I could feel and sense something good happening in my life. And then, like a week later, what happened? What Has it been a month? Has it been a year? It just feels like it's been a long time. Maybe that hasn't been your case, but if it has, or it hasn't, I guess I should say. Then think back to a time where you had a sudden dramatic shift in your life where everything changed. And if you can't think of that, then think about somebody who has. Maybe you've watched someone go through a sudden dramatic change where part of their life or really even their whole life shifted and really left you wondering what happened? The first time that this happened, at least that I remember this happened, um, was back when I was uh, a little bit younger, and it happened to Fred, well, Freddy. Freddy was uh, a friend of mine in school. We were pretty good friends in sixth grade, and uh, we, I was Robbie, he was Freddy, and it, one of the things that I really liked about Freddy was that his last name started with H, and my last name started with J, so that meant our lockers were near each other, so then I had like an instant friend, because, you know, in middle school... Sometimes that's important for you to have friends, so that was a bonus. The other thing that was really cool about Freddie was that he was funny. I mean, when he, he, he was pretty laid back, and when he told jokes, like his cheeks would get so big that his eyes would just close, and then his belly would shake, kind of like the Santa Claus rhyme, you know, bowl full of jelly, it would just shake. Because the other thing about Freddie was that he was he was a little bit vertically challenged, not as much as I was, but you know, enough that we could be friends, and so he was about five three, by the time we were in seventh or eighth grade, and about 155 or 165 pounds, so a round fellow, and he liked basketball, and his face kind of looked like a basketball, and I don't mean that in a mean way, I just mean that that's the kind of look that he had. So the best part about this was that not only was Freddie funny, Freddie was cute. That was a bonus because I was the one that usually got cute, and it's not cool to be an eighth grader and be called cute, okay? At least if you're a guy. And so that was the other bonus of Freddie. In fact, um, there's this moment where just the epitome of Freddie's junior high experience could be captured in his class photo. I couldn't find the yearbook, so I recreated it for you. You'll know why I'm not an artist, but. You know how that class picture, they ask you to turn and look and do this? Well, they kind of got him off-centered. So he's actually in the bottom corner of the picture. So in the eighth grade photo, he's down in the corner, and he looks like this. So you just have to picture the rest of him. So we leave middle school, and I say goodbye to Freddie. And all through middle school, he's been trying to be like, hey, call me Fred, and I was trying to be like, call me Rob, because that's cool. Well... We get back at the start of ninth grade. And I'm like, where's Freddie? You know, I, I count down the lockers because we're pretty much, you know, one, two, J to H. It's not that far. And all of a sudden, in walks this tall, chiseled man boy. <laughs> and he's like, hey. I'm like, who are you? He's like, Fred. And let me tell you, Nobody had a problem calling him Fred after that. <laughs> I tried to recreate his ninth-grade photo, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. He grew six or seven inches in three months. He still weighed about 155 to 165 pounds, except it just went all from like here to <laughs> this gigantic, proportioned, sh- chiseled. I'm uh, um, hulky man, it's like, wow. (gasps) I was a little envious. Maybe you've been there before where you see somebody go through this dramatic change and you're like, wow, how did that happen? I kind of want that. Now, puberty is kind of this necessary thing that we go through in our life, but I've had other people go through dramatic changes in their life and it's left the same feeling of what happened and And you 'll realize that if you haven't got, if you have tried to go through something like this, it 's actually much harder than you think of to go through a sudden dramatic shift Somebody a couple of my friends are trying to lose weight, and it seems like there's always a new fad, a new method for you to do this, and then when it may or may not work, and even if it does, you have people giving you all kinds of helpful, unwanted advice about this and and lots of times many many people see a change and then all of a sudden it it fluctuates it comes back on and through this process we just see how hard it is to actually go through a dramatic sudden change where really truly everything changes and these are just necessary parts of life healthy body size puberty but the life of faith and the kingdom of god are the things that are incredibly important And the scriptures show us that sudden, dramatic change can happen, and does happen, and it could happen to us. And we're going to look at a sudden, dramatic change from the scriptures that the disciples of Jesus went through, and Lord willing, can happen to us in the same way. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at a little bit of 1 and mostly chapter 2. And we'll see how this dramatic change happened from these disciples before Jesus gives them the spirit to the disciples after Jesus gives them the spirit. Because it's not actually the resurrection that changes them. It's what happens after that. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, "...in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven." after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So most people think this is, the writer of Acts is the same writer who writes Luke, because in Luke chapter 1 it says, Dear Theophilus, blah, 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 and it talks about the purpose of his first book, that was explaining what Jesus began to do and teach. And so he's saying all of these things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And then it says, After his sufferings, he presented himself to them, the apostles, the eleven, or the ones, the men and women that were closest to him. After his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he presents himself to his followers. He offers them these words of assurance. He offers them evidence, not only from his physical body, but evidence from the scriptures, from the law of Moses, from the prophets, from the writings, that all pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. Here's who the Messiah was, here's who the Messiah was, what the Messiah was supposed to do. And I fulfill that. And what we see. At the end of each of these stories about Jesus, there's four of them in your Bible, what we see is the disciples aren't that convinced. Now, the book of Matthew ends with this kind of grandiose finish where the very last three verses of the scripture says that Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And there's this like, ah. And maybe you've been in church where people have said, you know, if you just believe in Jesus and you, you walk with him, then, ah, he will surely be with you. And so maybe you've even tried to live this life of faith and you've stepped into a church and you've stepped into reading the Bible, you've stepped into prayer, and all of a sudden you're like, I don't feel the changes that I, that I think that this person up front or this church is trying to say. I don't feel this shift. Is, am I doing something wrong? And if you've ever felt that, keep reading because I think you'll be a little more encouraged than you first realize. Because the problem was, or the situation was, that even after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are not really, ah, yeah, they're actually terrified. And they're still really confused. And they're pretty hurting. And at least for Peter, they've only been recently reinstated. Now, maybe you disagree, but right before the end of these amazing verses in Matthew, it says that, when Jesus came to them, they worshiped Him, verse 17, but some doubted. They didn't quite know how to handle this. At the end of the next book about Jesus is Mark, an angel tells the woman who came, the women who came to the tomb that Jesus has risen, and that they were to go and find the disciples and tell them to meet him where he said that he would be. And it ends with trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid now i'm thinking and and this is my job i'm a pastor i don't ever remember anyone talking about those verses that would really help me in my life of faith as i try to dramatically shift to know that this wasn't as easy as people think the writer of luke ends a bit more hopeful that's the next book about jesus And he notices in in this, what I mean by Luke ends hopeful, is there's this one phrase in the second to last sentence of his book that says the disciples worshipped him. He's never, ever said that before. They worshipped Jesus. This is a really great phrase, but it also says after the resurrection that instead of welcoming Jesus and rejoicing that he appeared, they instead are terrified and worried That's also part of the end of Luke. And finally, in the last book about Jesus, John, John gives a few more hopeful things, but he also includes several more episodes of the disciples doubting and being fearful. A week after the resurrection, a week after the first Easter, John includes this story about how the disciples are locked in an upper room, fearful of the Jewish leaders he includes an episode where there's one of the disciples that says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I touch his side where the spirit, I won't believe. There are doubts, there are fears, there's confusion all over the place, even after Jesus' resurrection. And in the opening chapters of Luke, it says, in these 40 days, Jesus presented himself to them, and gave them convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead. If you've been here before, I've talked a little bit about 40. 40 is a significant number in the Bible. It means that something is changing radically. Like 40 weeks in the womb, something is dying, your life before parenthood, but something else is being born, a new life. Something is dying in the disciples, and and something new is being born. I would submit that that's part of what's happening in this first chapter of Acts. The disciples are confused, they're terrified, and yet, this Holy Spirit is coming. And we see Jesus saying, I'm here, I'm alive, I have done all that the scriptures needed me to do. We see finally the disciples doing the best they could with what they knew and what they had. So they say, you know what? The scriptures show that we need to replace this Judas guy, this person who betrayed Jesus. So we're gonna do that. And they do it by casting lots. It's in um, chapter one, verse 15. If you haven't read the story, and that's okay. But they decide to do this by doing the same decision-making process that their religion has taught them. Not bad, but it's not, it's not the way that Jesus taught them to make decisions. Jesus showed them and modeled what it meant to seek God's will, to seek in the spirit, to seek in prayer how to move forward, and they revert back to this way, and it, And for further evidence, this certain decision-making process is never shown again in Acts. It's never shown in the rest of Scripture, after they receive the Spirit. And the guy they choose, I'm sure he's a good guy, Mathis, it's probably likely that he didn't abandon the faith, but nothing is ever said about him ever again. So, again, I, I take the time to talk to you about these things, because... Often I've heard that when you just when you believe in Jesus and you receive him, then there's the sudden shift. And there's often a 40 days of wrestling. That's maybe not literally 40 days, but there's a period of time where something in you is dying and something in you knew is being born. And that's what I think was happening with the disciples until this day that we call Pentecost. Think about that picture that the writers are painting of the disciples. I mean, Because it's one thing for you and I to say that this is hard. You know, it's hard to believe that someone actually rose from the dead. It's hard to believe that, that this story has remained true and faithful over and over and over the years. But these are the disciples. These are the people who've actually seen and touched Jesus. Who've seen the evidence of the cuts on his forehead from the crown of thorns that it saw the nail marks in his wrists that saw his whips the lashes on his back from what happened to him and saw him alive they saw him walk through walls and just appear like in this supernatural body that was fully in flesh fully human but also supernatural they witnessed those things they felt the words of his peace They heard his vision for what to do, that they would be these witnesses. Witnesses that would take the stand to testify even when it's hard. But they don't tell his story. They don't share his news. They stay in this upper room. Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem, but we don't see any impact. We don't see any witness. We just see a lot of struggle. That's all before the Holy Spirit comes. But after the Holy Spirit's unleashed on them, whoa, then we see these people stand with confidence. We see them speak with understanding and authority. We see them pray fervently. We see them live devoted. We see them live generously. And they share the story of Jesus over and over and over and over. And it's like nothing will stop this movement that Jesus started. That's what we see after the Spirit. So maybe we can look at the story and find out what happened. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, that upper room. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seated. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, if you've ever been confused by this, it's okay to say amen, but the Spirit of God gathers and comes in like a sonic boom. It says, a violent, blowing wind. Think tornado. But also... Think about the Spirit of God that hovered over the waters at creation. This primal, hungry force. This is the Spirit that is blowing into this room. It is the Spirit of God. Think about the sounds they heard of the rushing of the wind. They could feel God's presence like they could feel that wind. Then they see these tongues of fire. Now fire has always been associated with God's presence. The very first, one of the very first stories of the Bible is when Adam and Eve have to leave the garden and what is, what is marked at the, ent- at the east gate of the garden blocking the entrance, but fiery swords of angelic people blocking God's presence. Then we see Moses being a shepherd And crawling up on this mountain and seeing a bush that burns but doesn't burn up. And God speaks from that fire. These tongues of fire mean God's presence. They can hear it. They can feel it. They can even see it. It is powerful. And what do they do? They start sharing the great deeds that God has done. And everybody hears about it. People have come from all over because this is not just a day that we now take. This has been a day called Pentecost. It celebrates the giving of the law of Moses that God gave to Moses. And it happens 50 days after Passover. It's one of the three major festivals that the Jews would come from all over the world to. And they would often pick Passover and pick the fall feast of tabernacles. Many would stay or some would stay from Passover to Pentecost because it's only 50 days apart but most people had jobs most people had fields to get back to so Pentecost was kind of the the third wheel but on this particular like least favorite traditional holiday God decides to do something miraculous something that was predicted thousands of years before this, something that they'd waited for as the people of God, something that they'd hoped for, something that they'd expected but never thought they would see fulfilled. And it is fulfilled on this day. And I think everything happened in that moment, and particularly three things happened when the Spirit invaded their lives, and it's stuff that I believe can still happen to us today. We see the first thing that happened to them When the Holy Spirit invaded them as they were filled with a security, a secure relationship with God. I mean, people mock them. When the Holy Spirit comes on a group of people, there will always be someone who's going to mock. But everyone will take notice, and others will ask what it means. And that's what happened in this particular story. And people accuse them of being drunk, and it says in verse 11 um, through 13, we don't know what this means. They're speaking about these great deeds. We can understand it in our own language. And, and they say, well, they're just drunk. And it says, Peter stood up with the 11. He stood up and he addressed people that were the people that yelled, crucify him to Jesus, their teacher, their Lord. He stood up in front of the leaders that manipulated the system to have Jesus executed by the Romans. These are not just a a gentle, unspoken church group. This is almost like a mob accusing them of being drunk. I want to submit to you today that, that Peter and, and all of the disciples had a security, a secure relationship with God that happened because the Holy Spirit invaded their life. Peter stands up and he delivers the word of God like he's never delivered it before. In fact, we see some of the same attributes that Jesus gave in sharing the word of God and interpreting the word of God that, that Peter does here. And I believe it comes from this place where he realized what Jesus had said about the Holy Spirit being this gift that God the Father promised. Back in Acts 1-3, we read, Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and on one occasion he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. For you have heard me speak about this before. I think Peter recalls a time where Jesus was speaking to them about prayer. It's in Luke 11, where they're like, Teacher, teach us to pray like, like the other rabbis teach their disciples. And he said, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." And the disciples are looking at him like, that's not a very long prayer. And so he explains why they should pray this way. And he talks about seeking God because he's good. And and he uses some examples about people, like if your kids ask for, ask for a fish, would you give them a snake? No, you'd never do that. Well, then if you might do that, if you're so twisted that you would do that, think about how much more good God is, and how much he wants to give good gifts to his children. Peter, I think Peter, realizes that God is not just Jesus' father, that in the spirit, now God is his father and all of their father, and he has the gift that God the father promised. And this is a gift that is better than any gift that we could ever imagine. Think back to a gift you received from your parents that was something you desperately wanted. And if you received it, did you just grab it, run to your room, and take it and and look at it? Or did you open it in front of them? And did they get to witness the glee, the happiness that was on your face? Did they even get to interact with you in whatever this thing is? See, a gift is always connected to a relationship if it's a true gift. And Peter senses the secure relationship that God has now given them. And he's able to stand up with a boldness that he's never had. The Spirit can invade your life in the same way and give you that same kind of security when you realize what a gift the Spirit is that the Father has promised. When the Holy Spirit comes and invades their life, the second thing is they're filled with this authority. Peter is able to stand up and say, you know what? You know what you're seeing here? You're not seeing drunk people. You're actually seeing what God predicted m- long ago from the prophets. In fact, Joel talked about it. The prophet Joel said that there would come a day where our sons and our daughters would prophesy, where young men would dream dreams, where old men would have visions, where, where men and women alike Young, old, rich, poor, they would all have the Spirit pour out on them. This, this thing you're experiencing now, it's that. And he is not only able to interpret the story of God in their story, he's also able to go back through the Psalms and say, and what you did to Jesus, yeah, that was in God's story too. Look, it's in Psalm 8, it's in Psalm 108, and he goes through and explains in the story of this chapter right here of Peter addressing the crowd. Acts 2, of how God has already predicted this. Have you ever watched someone or been in in an experience, maybe in a Bible study or even in a church, where someone is able to point your story to God's story and see how they relate? If you have, it's a magnificent moment. It doesn't just bring authority. It comes from this place of understanding. I was asking someone about this when they experienced this in their life. It was someone from the worship team and the the person told me a story of being on a mission trip. Now, mission trips in junior and senior high, you have to remember like they're not all god-glorifying amazing. They're often this like sweaty, smelly, sometimes complaining experience. Well, it was day 5, so they're almost done. With the experience, they've been in a car for hundreds of mi- a van for hundreds of miles. There's been, they've been sleeping on the floor of a church. They get to shower like three times a week. And let's just remember, boys in middle school and high school, they're hygiene challenged. And so they get to the last day, and there's this final worship session and debrief. And this, the, the worship team stops and invites the leaders who have come with all of these students to come forward And they grab basins of water and a towel and they come back to their groups and they start washing their students' feet. And this person said in that moment there was this divine understanding of who God was that I'd never experienced before but I've never forgotten. I think that's what's happening in this part of the scripture, in this part of the story. That that Peter has this authority that's come from this place of divine understanding. Now maybe he was actually sitting up in the upper room, not being afraid, but he was reading in his fears, he was reading the scroll of Joel, or the book of Joel. Maybe when they were in the upper room, they were actually praying through the Psalms. So the Spirit spoke to them in that moment. I don't think we can, can wish for God's authority if we don't spend time in God's word. His authority came from being with Jesus and understanding God's word. It says in a couple speeches later in the book, it says that, that Peter and John stood up and they gave this speech and in verse 13 of chapter four, when the leaders saw the courage of Peter and John they re- and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When the Holy Spirit invades your life, you realize that Jesus isn't just with you when you feel him, he's with you all the time, everywhere. And it's an understanding that brings an authority. Finally, when the Holy Spirit invades these people, they were filled with a power. A power that could be felt. Jesus talked about it already, he said, after this period of 40 days, he said, wait, but You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think for a lot of people that have been in church, they realize that the Holy Spirit is this power to do and this power to act, but they forget that this power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's a power that produced something new. When the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at creation and God spoke, let there be light, guess what? There was light. When Jesus was told by two sisters that their brother was sick and that Jesus needed to come and he didn't and he died, they said, Lord, if you had been here, he would live. And Jesus walked up to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And guess what? Lazarus rose from the grave because when God's Spirit speaks, stuff happens. That same Spirit is what Peter has in this moment because the Holy Spirit has invaded his life. It's the spirit that God invites us to have too. He, he gets f- finished with this speech and he says, filled with the spirit, let all Israel be assured of this, verse 36, that God has made Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the others, brothers, what must we do? They did not have that feeling before this point. Peter didn't have this great oratory skills. He was a fisherman, swore like a sailor at the end of Jesus' life. He has the Spirit of God which produces something new. And when the Holy Spirit invades your life, you can have it too. He says, repent and be baptized, all of you turn away from where you've been and you will be alive in Christ. He will forgive your sins. You, you people who killed the Son of God, who were yelling crucify Him, will be forgiven. You're not going to go on trial for murder. You're actually going to have an invitation to life. Think about that. When the Holy Spirit invades your life, everything's different. It might not feel like this. It might take work. It might take God spending 40 days with you, convincing you, calming you, giving you the evidence you need or the comfort you need. But when the Holy Spirit invades, everything can change and you can be filled with a security and an authority and a power that you've never felt before. But God will not force his way in. He will wait for the invitation. And if the disciples couldn't live this out without the Spirit of God, even though they'd experienced all these things, then how much more do we need the Spirit of God who haven't experienced the same things as the disciples? We need to do this. Will Otherwise, we'll live by our own efforts. We'll try to use religion and we'll be frustrated and it'll feel like something's missing. It'll feel like eighth grade Freddy instead of ninth grade Fred. But when we let the Spirit come in, everything can be different. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we would hear the words of Peter that are your words from the Holy Spirit. If we feel like we lack some security, if we feel like we don't have an understanding that really births authority, and we don't have a power that that marks these spirit-filled, Christ-centered followers of Jesus, I pray that we would repent and be baptized. That we would repent, God, to seeing your gift of grace through your Spirit because you love us because your grace is love, because your gift of the Spirit is this pouring out of this this promise that we are invited to. I pray that we'd repent to your word, God, that we would receive the authority that comes from understanding your word and being with you, and I pray that we would make time with you. I pray that we would repent unto prayer, God, That we would pray for your spirit and for your power and in your spirit and in your power that we might speak and we might invite and we might live devoted and we might live generous and we might speak words that produce change. Not for our glory, God, but for yours. To be people that continue your story of who you are and what you've done. Amen.